Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. That's the crowd at a recent rally in Greenfield, North Carolina, where President Trump escalated attacks against four freshman Democratic congresswomen of color, including Massachusetts Representative Ayanna Presley. This followed a series of tweets by the president in which he told the four elected officials that they should go back to the countries from which they came. The racist tweets and charged atmosphere is part of a nationwide volatile environment which has contributed to the sharp increase in hate crimes worldwide in the last three years. A horrific scene in Charlottesville, Virginia, a white nationalist rally that has swarmed an area around the Tree of Life Synagogue. This is a still trying to figure out how a fire here at the main office of the Highlander Center started, but the executive director says the fire is suspicious. One such incident is the March arson attack on the historic Social Justice Leadership School, Tennessee's Highlander Education and Research Center. During its nearly 90-year history, the Highlander has helped train a cadre of well-known community organizers and activists, including Martin Luther King Jr., Pete Seeger, and Rosa Parks. Recently, the center's co-directors traveled to Boston, raising awareness and funds for the rebuilding of their physical space. Later in the show, at the fictional struggling Gleason Street School, education, history, race, and class converge in an immersive theater experience which upends understandings of power and governance. Company One Theater tops off its 20th season with the world premiere of Greater Good. But first, I had a chance to talk to Ashley Woodard Henderson and Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele, the co-directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center, during their visit to Boston. Welcome, Ash. Thank you so much. And welcome, Alan. Good to be with you. We were also joined by Peter Dreyer, a professor of political science and urban and environmental policy at Occidental College. He joined us from his home in Pasadena, California. Hello, Professor Dreyer. Nice to be with you. Nice to have you all. I want to start with uh, the fire itself. So, um, Alan, I'll start with you. Uh, what happened the day of the fire? Well, the fire is still under investigation, uh, so there's details that we can't conclude about at this moment. Um, what happened is also we learned that our main office was burned to the ground, uh, and then we welcomed later that evening 55, 60 Central Appalachian people to come and talk about alternatives to the prison system. So even though there was a fire On site, we also kept our work moving, uh, and we also discovered that there was a white power symbol in the parking lot adjacent to the fire. So, Ash, just just for clarification, so the main building burn, uh, was anybody hurt? You know, just give me some a a few details you can share. Yeah. Yeah. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't what people think of as our main building. Mm -hmm. Um, It was though the main office. So it was where our like administrative offices were. It's where me and Alan had meetings with our staff. 
Um, it wasn't where our archives are, although we did have an archive room that had papers and memorabilia that were in process, but mostly uh, from more recent decades than the civil rights movement. So the, the press that said that we lost all of our documents and stuff is actually not correct. At about six o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call saying that the building was fully engulfed. So um, it had to have been started somewhere around four or five a.m. in the morning. And what it meant, I mean, obviously our first thought was, God, please don't let anybody have been in that building and don't let any of the first responders be hurt as they tend to uh, trying to save it. And luckily, no one was in that office. But it is not abnormal for me to work till the wee hours of the morning and fall asleep in our office. It's not unlikely on our nearly 200 acre farm for us to have people at the office to welcome people. And so sometimes people will stay overnight. And so luckily, no one was physically injured. I think that Definitely folks dealt with like smoke inhalation for having been out there all morning. But other than that and the trauma of what it meant that our sacred space had been invaded, um, everybody was physically okay. And we've been really intentional about making sure that people can continue to feel safe and secure in that space. And also that we were dealing with the sort of healing work that needs to happen after a trauma like that occurs. And to be clear, there was a symbol that was found in the charred remains. Alan, I know you can't speak about all the details while the investigation is going on, but that is how we know that this was, in fact, a hate crime. I think we learned from investigations that journalists did later that the symbol that was sprayed is connected or at least was similar to the organization known as the Iron Guard, which was the symbol that was on the rifle that the person who shot up the mosque in New Zealand uh, had on that rifle. So there's definitely some connections there that appear to be what we found on the parking lot. So there will be people listening to this conversation who don't know Highlander and are wondering, now, why is a a education and research center a target for a hate crime? (laughs) Um, So I'm going to allow Alan, you and Ash speak about it. Then I want Professor Dreyer to weigh in. Why would Highlander be a target for a hate crime, Alan? Sure. So, you know, we're in 2019. We're an 87-year-old organization that's been helping people come together to talk about structural change in their communities and their families and their region. And we've been bringing people together from across difference. And I think if we're looking at what the folks who sustain and imagine a white supremacist or a white ethnic state or a white ethno state, their goal is not for people from across difference to be brought together to talk about uh, justice and love and bringing people together to figure out something on their own terms and self-determine their own futures. Uh, And so because we've worked with those people and we are those people for 87 years, uh, I don't think people really like us all that much. Ash? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I also think that we're in the throes of of contesting for power, right? And I think that what we know is that these white supremacists, white nationalists, these Christian Zionists and supremacists are desperately trying to erase memory, right? They don't want us to remember that we actually come from a very radical legacy of resistance as Southerners, as Appalachians. They don't want white people to know that there is another way and that the thing that they're getting right is that they're making folks, particularly between the ages of like 18 and 30, feel like there's a place of belonging with them in a time where white supremacy and capitalism is having like in some ways, it's final gasp, we hope, right? And so I think that it's an attempt to try to freeze us in fear or try to scare us away from doing what we know is right in terms of building beloved community. And I think that they thought that what it would do is make them look like the the rad white people that got the Highlander Center. And in fact, what it did was remind a whole generation of people what our work had been and introduce a whole generation of people to what the work currently is. We're not a living museum. Um, so I think that they attacked us because they thought it would be good for their recruitment. I think that they attacked us because they know that I'm a the first black woman executive director of the Highlander Center and that, you know, both with my black skin, my Appalachian accent and my queerness, that they thought that they would be able to scare us from continuing to do our work. And we haven't canceled one program. I think that the hope is that 
folks will continue to lean into the risk that it is required to be able to make this world a better place regardless of those attacks. And then our responsibility is to make sure that people are protected and flanked as they do that. That's my guest, Ashley Woodard Henderson, along with Reverend Alan Maxfield-Steele, and they are the co-directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee. Now, over to you, Professor Peter Dreyer. You've been uh, studying and writing about the Highlander Center for some time. In fact, you wrote a piece right after the fire to let folks uh, have some sense of the history uh, and the breadth and the depth of what's been going on there for as uh, Alan reminded us, 87 years. Would you put in the uh, spectrum of history and social justice history where the Highlander fits? Highlander is a remarkable organization. It was started in 1932 by a guy named Miles Horton, who grew up in Appalachia and saw a lot of the, uh, the coal miners and the sharecroppers and ordinary people being oppressed by big business, by government, by segregationists. And so he wanted to do something to help bring about social change. And uh, he'd gone to New York to go to theology school, and he was captured by something called the social gospel, the belief that Christianity has to work in practice, not just in theory. And so his practice was to start a school in rural Tennessee that would bring together white and black people to fight for economic and social justice. And it began as a school supporting the, uh, the labor movement during the Depression. Uh, the first class of Highlander students provided food and other things to help workers that were on strike in Appalachia. It became a center for the civil rights movement in the 1950s, where folks like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and current Congressman John Lewis and others came for three-day and five-day and 10-day workshops. Uh, people from all over the South to come together to talk about how to bring about a more integrated society and to implement the 1954 Supreme Court decision against school segregation. And it has a, a really remarkable history of training people to be social activists. And one of Miles Horton's uh, theories, one of his ideas, was that everybody can be a leader. Everybody can be an activist. Uh, we all have it in us to work with others to bring about social change, but we need the skills and the support and the organizations that help us do that. And that's what Highlander has been doing since uh, the 1930s. Of course, Highlander has also caused a lot of consternation by people who are anti-union, by segregationists, by white supremacists. And so many, many times, uh, both law enforcement officials have used trumped up charges to try to close down the school. They have actually closed down the school several times in the 50s and 60s. The Ku Klux Klan and other hate groups tried to shut it down with more illegal means, but it's always survived. In fact, one of the great things that Miles Horton once said is that Highlander is not just a building or an institution, it's an idea. And you can burn down a building, but you can't kill an idea. And the idea of Highlander is the idea that people can fight for social justice. And uh, there's some great stories about Highlander's impact on everyday people. Uh, one of them, of course, is the famous story that Rosa Parks went to a 10-day workshop at Highlander back in 1955. Uh, she'd already been a, an activist in Montgomery, Alabama with the NAACP. When she came to that workshop at Highlander, she said that for the first time, white people served me food and reinforced her belief that white people and black people could work together. 
and mm-hmm. could form an integrated society. And so she went back to Montgomery after this workshop. And a couple months later, she was sitting on that bus in Montgomery in December 1955 and decided not to move to the back of the bus. But it wasn't something she did on a whim. It was something she did having been inspired by her experience at Highlander. That's my guest political science and urban and environmental policy at Occidental College. Um, I'll ask you to weigh in, too. So why is Highlander now, in 2019, ripe for a hate crime? Every so often there are periods of hate and uh, resistance to uh, social justice, and it's no accident that these increase in hate crimes is happening while Donald Trump is president. It actually started while he was campaigning for president. You know, after Charlottesville, when he says there are good people on both sides, including people in the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you can imagine that the people who, white supremacists who might have kept quiet, now think they have permission from the President of the United States to engage in uh, both racist rhetoric and hate crimes. And so uh, I'm not surprised that this is another period of American history of reaction to social justice. This is a, uh, an attempt to uh, to push back the successes of the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the queer movement, the environmental movement, all the great social changes that have taken place in uh, both in our laws and our attitudes and public opinion are now being resisted by Trump and his uh, cult followers. Yeah, so it's, it's Professor Dreyer said it's really a, a kind of pushback against a kind of organizing training that you all do that has long been the legacy of the Highlander Education and and Research Center. I wanted to, because the alumni from Highlander just goes on and on, the names that people would know. Of course, we've mentioned Martin Luther King. We've mentioned Rosa Parks. There was also Pete Seeger, the singer that people may know of, his long history with, with the Highlander. I found this clip that I thought was great that gives a sense of the history of the place. This is Pete Seeger describing the first time he met Martin Luther King Jr. at the Highlander's 25th anniversary celebration. They took a picture of him sitting there, listening to me with a bunch of other people. The picture was enlarged to nine feet high and 30 feet wide and spread around the South, uh, saying, Martin Luther King at Communist Training School. (laughs) Miles used to joke, why couldn't they publish our address or phone number? Not all that free publicity. He's making light of some of the pressures that were always brought to bear on the school. So when people think about community organizing, Alan and Ash, they think, you know, people sort of come fully formed. I woke up one day, I decide I'm going to organize, and then I know how to do it. And in fact, both of you come from a history of organizing personally before you uh, rose to leadership at the Highlander. So give us just a, a taste of what is happening in those organizing sessions and why Highlander continues to be a place where people come to try to understand how they may want to go back to their communities and work. Sure. From my own experience coming through Highlander's program and from 2007 until about 2012, 13, Highlander's work doesn't divorce education and organizing from one another. In fact, the, the, the model and the idea is that if you give people the space and the relationships and the information, then they can make plans themselves to go organize and practice and come back and share what they learned and that, that kind of work. And that basically is theory, practice, and summation, what we talk about all the time. But also from a pedagogical perspective, we call it popular education or people's education. And so what that typically looks like, whether it's at the 
workshop center at Highlander in our rocking chairs, uh, or whether it's out in the field, out in communities and hollers or the cities that we're working in. Um, it's looking like bringing people together, helping them share their experiences, helping them look for patterns about what's going on in their neighborhood or wherever they may be living or whatever they might be up against. Um, and it's helping people add, get, get new information. Uh, and then it's helping people figure out a plan and then go practice that plan and then start that process over again. And you're doing on-the-ground problems with people in their various communities. This is actually what Black Lives Matter has tried to explain what they do. They want to be on the ground trying to talk to people about their problems where they are, not, as some might imagine, some grandiose big theme right. of whatever. Right. That's that's really the work. It's it's small and it's community-based, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> when you think there's a way that sometimes what folks will describe Highlanders, oh, y'all focused on so many issues, et cetera. It's like, actually, we've done one thing, and we try to do it really well, which is help people learn together. Mm-hmm. And people come from a multiple set of identities. People don't represent just one thing in their lives, and so we help people find the intersections by helping them understand their own experiences, by also helping connect them to people from other experiences. So, so Ash, people, many people have said they left there feeling inspired, mm-hmm. um, able to. And if, as Professor Dreyer has said, the ordinary person feeling as though they didn't have leadership skills can leave to do that. What what happens there that inspi- makes that inspiration, yeah. uh, that, that gets them to take that inspiration back to their home communities? Que- we get this question a lot. <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, we didn't start our relationship with Highlander as the co-executive directors. We started as like, 20 I was younger than 20 but 20 he was some he was some, a 20 I'm a something bit yeah. um I was a like a 19 year old but you know a, a younger person coming to see what the what the magic sauce was too and in my experience we actually are both of our first time at the Highlander Center uh was at the 75th anniversary of of the center and I remember going and being like I'm from East Tennessee 2 hours away I never knew this place existed I didn't know all these people thought it was important. You know, it felt like something was stolen from me. And then I got there, and I, it felt like I had found my people. It's in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, and most Appalachians and mountain people believe that's good medicine. And so both the, like, natural beauty of it and the, you know, it, it for some people is the first place they've seen people come together across difference and it not be trauma, you know, that, like, people are coming together and literally, like, having hard conversations and not hurting and harming each other. That they're coming together and, like, yeah, they do the work to learn together and share skills and talk about how bad the world is and how much better it could be and how to make it that better world. But even more than that, I think what people find to be so inspiring is that they get to, like, listen deeply to each other in a way that's, like, not impacted by so much of what society says is impossible. And I think it makes them see the possibilities of a new world. I also think that, like, some of the stuff is really simple. It's like people eat meals together, and it's fun. And they, you know... Continue to have this continual dialogue. Yeah, they get to be fully human. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our young people say consistently we have a, a children's justice camp that is for young people that between, like, the ages of 6 and 12. And over and over and over again, the feedback that we get from those young people and some of the the folks that are in their 30s now but that were young people in children's camp consistently say to us that it's the first time that they felt fully like autonomous and human and able to be their full selves in a place, regardless of their identity and where they came from and what the world says about them. Um, and so I don't think that we're necessarily doing something that's like magical. It's pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. <laughs> we bring people together to sometimes have hard conversations 
whether it's like a hard conversation because of the differences and the clash or because it's really hard to vision a mm. better world. And we put them in rocking chairs and we say, duke it out until you get to it and then take that new knowledge home and do something with it to make the world a better place. And I think that that's, it's really hard not to leave feeling inspired when your your brain and your body and your soul are like finally getting an opportunity to flex into what society has really kept you from being able to do. So does a period of time that we're in now, which is fraught and tumultuous, and as we've discussed, hate crimes are on the increase, and that's documented. That's not Mm -hmm. something we're making up. Mm -hmm. Does that make the work that you do more relevant to Mm -hmm. most people, or uh, do they feel like, okay, I tried that, and that's uh, that's too slow for me? I don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. I need to do something else. I don't know what it is, but but maybe not this. How do you you respond to that? I think it's a mixed bag, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that there are some people who (laughs) we got announced as the the first permanent co-executive directors, a black, queer Appalachian and a white, straight, relatively straight, (laughs) cisgendered, white dude, preacher guy from the Piedmont. Um, And I think that, like, that announcement came about a week after Trump was elected. And so I think there were especially very, like, folks from very privileged backgrounds who were terrified who did not see it coming, even though we had you said it was coming. the election or us? Mm. Yeah. Both. <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. Um, but who did not see 45 coming and were like, we literally have no idea what to do. And I think those folks flocked to us to for direction, for comfort, to find a place to grieve, quite frankly, um, because their understanding of the world had significantly shifted um, and they didn't know why they had gotten it so wrong. I think there were other folks that come from less privileged backgrounds who were like, well, thank God Highlander's still here because we said this was coming and we needed space to come up with plans and we used it and now we know what to do, but we need that movement accompaniment and support and flanking that Highlander has been able to provide for 87 years. And so I think it's been, I think it's been mixed. I think what we've seen is that it's a beautiful thing in this iteration of who we are is that like we're not separate from those social movements, that we are a catalyst for social movements and stuff gets birthed out of Highlander all the time and then goes and becomes great things. But we're also intimately involved in the movement for black lives. We are on the the team that wrote the policy platform. We are the people that are helping create those strategies. We're a part of the Southern Movement Assembly and are doing the work with the Governance Council to build alternatives to the state and mutual aid and to protect and defend communities from state-sanctioned violence. And so it's not that we are somehow like, you know, for for lack of a better term, the mecca of social movement. It is true that it's a movement home for people. But even more, it's like, it feels like home because we're family. Like, we literally are those people that have also been on the front lines. We've taken charges. We showed up at Standing Rock. We were in Charlotte and Charleston. Um, you know, we marched in the streets when Walter Scott got murdered. And we were there to comfort our family when Mother Emanuel got shut up. This is not the first storm that we weathered. And, like, that's that's true in the streets, but that's also very true for our institution, right? Like mm-hmm. you heard Professor Dreyer talk about the many times where the state and white supremacist organizations partnered to attack our, inf- our movement infrastructure, not because we were so special, but because the people that participated in our mm. work were, right? And if you can separate community from the institution, then you destroy the infrastructure. And what we've been able to do is weather those storms over and over again both because the leadership and the membership of like our staff and, and our board of directors, which included folks like Rosa Parks and Septima Clark, 
um, you know, everybody wants to talk about Miles, but there were three other founders that also, you know, did incredible work. And, and quite frankly, black women have been the the life's blood of that institution for a really long time, including Miss Rosa, who didn't only drain, but then came back and like served the institution. Those folks make Highlander relevant. And I think that, you know, going back to what happened on March 29th, that that's exactly the reason they need to destroy this infrastructure, because they know that if the infrastructure is successful, this this way of being will no longer exist in the world, which I think people feel like is an impossible dream but we we are literally watching it happen we're literally watching people say that like this is not going to happen in my neighborhood mm. that this is not okay um, that we are better than this and we're going to continue to feed into the folks that are doing that so Alan I have a question that you know always gets the hackles up of the Millennials but I have to ask it and that is you know are you seeing in your space people who've moved past hashtag activism what I call and into the kind of you know long term you got to stick with it you have to have a plan you have to have some education perspective that you all preach and teach at at Highlander yeah I mean I think one indicator of what people want to do right now is the fact that, People are coming together since 2016 and even before that to Highlander. We haven't had a slow week. We haven't had a slow weekend. There may be a couple of days here and there where we have uh, the opportunity to take a step back and our staff has the opportunity to step back. So to me, that's an indicator that people want to get together in person um, and then use the strategies of hashtag activism. I don't I don't use that language, but um, use all the strategies. I think that you know, it was Fannie Lou Hamer said, by any means means all the means or yeah use all the means so yeah. it's like that 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 is a fundamental way that we think about how we support people's work whether they're coming more from an online activism space and holding that uh, turf oh, no i didn't mean to criticize the online activism yeah. itself it's to say that sometimes it the criticism has been that's all they think works they uh-huh. put a hashtag Everybody's outraged, and then it goes away. Uh, Whereas there is, as as most people in in social justice movements know, it's low and slow, sort of like barbecue. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got to yeah. keep going. <laughs> and, you know. As a Tennessean, I know the low and slow. Uh, yes, yes, my daddy's from Memphis. I, I'm um, from Memphis. Uh oh. <laughs> See, yeah, you know, you know, real bar- barbecue yes, is a proper that is name. Correct. Right. Yes. Um, okay. As a millennial, <laughs> you know, I I think it's a really good question um, because I do think that what people see is the surface. You know, I think obviously when we talk about hashtag activism, a lot of people think of Black Lives Matter in particular since it started as a love letter online. But what people maybe don't know is specifically to that. This I think this is a, a very specific example that can be broader for other folks that are doing like digital digital organizing, mm-hmm. which I had to quite frankly be organized too. I was like, I don't understand how you do that, <laughs> right? Especially coming from both urban and rural contexts where people didn't have access to the internet, right? But what I know for sure, because I know the founders of BLM, is that, like, the stuff that people saw on the surface of, like, what it meant to have a hashtag that went viral was the least amount of the strategy. Important, critical, calm strategies are important. But, like, Alicia Garza had been organizing for a decade before Black Lives Matter, right? Patrice Kahn Colors, or Colors Kahn, had been doing organizing through art, and culture bearing um, for decade before Black Lives Matter. Oh, I know the leaders were. I was just right. curious as to whether you think millennials are yeah. appreciating now yeah. the space at so, Island. So I Islander think as that. a millennial, yeah. I think that what we've seen is that, again, that uh, by any means necessary means by all the means. And I think that the, the thing that has been absent isn't people's desire for protracted struggle. I think that the protracted struggle, I think that the thing that has been um, absent is like the resourcing of training institutions to be able to help them 
no other tactics, right? So if you, for example, were politicized post Mike Brown or Trayvon Martin or Eric Garner, or Oscar Grant or Sandra Bland or, uh, you know, any of the, the hundreds, if not thousands of black trans women who've been murdered over the last few years, that if what you saw was us protest, then that was the only tactic that you saw us do because it was the one that you had the most access to, then what you know how to do is shut down streets you know how to go into city council meetings and turn up. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know how to use those tactics inside of movement as well, right? Like, you know how to blow up somebody's meeting if you don't get what you want, right, et cetera. But what we didn't necessarily have was at the same scale and scope, folks training on how to do, like, base building and organizing and yes. door knocking, how to do policy and advocacy work, how to provide The foundational stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. to me, it's not like the, mm. it's not just the fault of millennials who only saw a hashtag and a protest. It's also then the responsibility of a Highlander Center, of a, like, Center for Third World Organizing, of a Black Organizing for Leadership and dignity um, of a blackout collective to then go and be like, all right, y'all, that was a tactic. Y'all are becoming proficient in that. This is how you study. Mm. These are the the mm. hundreds of other tactics that you that are in your toolbox. Go. Right. right. Um, right. So I think it's I think a lot of times we see the millennial fault. But I think it's actually the fault of those of us that know better to train them in the other tactics. I think they're thirsty for it. Professor Dreyer, I wonder if you can offer up a, a thought about the legacy of Highlander. It's it's still here. We know that. But I mean, as you, you I think you've written about the people who have come through there and and also it's, it's still a little bit under the radar for a lot of people except in the organizing circles. So, so what's your perspective on the legacy of Highlander? Highlander is fairly invisible to the general public, but uh, millions and millions of Americans over many years have been influenced by what happened at uh, Highlander in many different ways. For example, everybody knows the song, We Shall Overcome. What they don't know, probably, is that um, that song was brought to Highlander by some African-American tobacco workers uh, in in the late 40s. Pete Seeger and Guy Carawan, who was the uh, the music director of Highlander, heard the song, changed it a bit, and uh, sang it to some civil rights activists at the first meeting of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1960. And, Professor, I'm going to pause you right there because I want to play a cut of Joan Baez uh, leading protesters and singing We Shall Overcome. And the specific section she's singing was actually uh, created on the spot had a nighttime raid at Highlander by a young student, uh, an Alabama student, young black student, and she came up with these words, this part of the song, then I'll come back to you. Professor Dreyer, continue that I thought that song, those lyrics specifically, and the song in general both speak to a response to those who would try to shut down the school and the movements, and also the the underpinning of the purpose of the school, which is we will overcome, we shall overcome. Yeah, the original song was I Will Overcome, and Pete Seeger and Guy Carawan changed it to We Shall Overcome. It quickly became 
the anthem of the civil rights movement, and it's spread throughout the world. People now sing We Shall Overcome in dozens of languages. Anybody fighting for freedom, fighting for social justice around the world knows that song, We Shall Overcome. What they don't know is that its origins were uh, spread uh, at Highlander. Another good example is that in 1941, a... Uh, a student at Smith College named Betty Goldstein went to a workshop at Highlander to learn how to be an activist journalist. And then she went back to Smith College, graduated. She got a couple of jobs with labor union newspapers. She got married and changed her name to Betty Friedan and wrote the book, The Feminine Mystique, that really spawned the modern uh, feminist movement. And that created a worldwide movement of, of feminism and it started at Highlander. Anybody who uh, works for voter registration and voting rights, uh, which is still an important issue in America right now, they probably don't know that uh, one of the first campaigns for voting rights took place led by Septima Clark, who had been at Highlander and started what she called uh, citizenship schools uh, to train uh, African-Americans to learn how to read and write so they, they could vote because of the uh, the laws that required people to uh, to read and write the literacy test. And so the legacy of Highlander continues, and millions and millions of people in this country and around the world have been influenced by its ideas, by the training, by the songs, uh, by the movements that it helped spawn, even if they've never heard the name Highlander. So as Miles Horton said, Highlander is an idea, and that idea is that Highlander is a school for democracy. Um, and um, as your guests have talked about, it continues today uh, about prison reform, environmental justice, uh, civil rights, uh, all kinds of, uh, of social justice movements. But the thing they all have in common is teaching ordinary people to take their futures in their own hands uh, and to learn from the experiences of people that came before them and to develop a sense of uh, possibility uh, to move away from cynicism and skepticism towards hope. And so when we say and we sing, we shall overcome, we're really repeating the the idea of Highlander, which is that people can be oppressed, people can be repressed, people can be uh, uh, the subjects of injustice, but they are also the authors of their own history. They're the authors of their own lives. And if they learn the skills, they learn the, uh, the tradition of activism and organizing that they can overcome. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. I thank you all for joining me. Thank oh, you. It was a lot thank of fun. You. Ashley Woodard Henderson and Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele are the co-directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center, the Historic Civil Rights Training School in Newmarket, Tennessee. And Peter Dreyer is a professor of political science and urban and environmental policy at Occidental College. We're going to leave you with the Freedom Singers singing, We Shall Overcome. Coming up, a dysfunctional parent council, an ill-equipped school headmaster, and the looming shadow of whatever went wrong at the last school meeting. 
That sets the stage at the struggling Gleason Street School, the focus of the new play Greater Good from Company One and the American Repertory Theater. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. The Gleason Street School is in trouble. Its teachers are underpaid, its headmaster is clueless, and the members of its parent council are at each other's throats. I should mention the school is fictional, but the story, a new drama from Company One Theater, comes alive in the very real halls and classrooms of Back Bay's Commonwealth School. Greater Good is an interactive theater experience which starts in the now and then takes the audience back in time to a pivotal moment that sealed Gleason Street's fate in a narrative that explores the intersection of privilege, education, governance, and democracy in our society. Joining me to discuss Greater Good, Kirsten Greenwich, playwright and creator of Greater Good. Kirsten is currently a Mellon Fellow and a Howl Round artist. How do you pronounce that? Howl Round, yes. Howl Round artist in residence at Company One. She is also an assistant professor of theater at Boston University School of Theater. Hello, Kirsten. Hello. Uh, also with me, Ilana Brownstein, dramaturg and director of new work at Company One Theater. She was the lead dramaturg in the development of Greater Good. Welcome, Ilana. Hello. Um, we always have to start, Ilana, with what does a dramaturg do? <laughs> because... You know, I, 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 it's, it comes up more now, but it's not something that sort of rolls off the tongue, as you can see. So I'll let you begin that way. What do you do? <laughs> Great. Um, so the dramaturg is the person in a theatrical process whose job it is to identify the pathways into the world of the play and to open those doors for all the various constituencies who might meet that work along the way. So that could be the artists, um, the people who work at the company that's producing the play, our community stakeholders, our audiences, um, our funders. There's a lot of different people who want to know what it is we do. Mm -hmm. And within the world of the play, one of my jobs is to not just provide research on the world, but to figure out how to make these webs of connection mm -hmm. so that the depth of the world of the play becomes part of the world we actually live in. Okay. Well, we'll get back to you because you had a lot of work to do on this one because it's so different. Um, uh, Kirsten, you created something uh, quite fair. I saw it the other night. It's really so interesting. I mean... I the audience is all in it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You guys are. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Take so you have to describe it a little bit more than I have, except we do not, you know, give anything away. So mm -hmm. as best you can without giving anything away, uh, let people know what they will be experiencing in the immersive experience. <laughs> well, basically, the play begins uh, much like other plays do. You come in, you sit down, um, uh, and you experience. Um, Baby's basically a one-act short play where uh, we realize that the play is a, the school is in deep trouble, and then the audience uh, breaks apart into three groups, and we start to see all the moments um, that uh, that have led up to that uh, uh, that moment, and 
the audience sees smaller plays. They get to interact with uh, the cast. They get to interact with the agents that are leading them through the space of the Commonwealth School. And um, and then they are uh, led back into another group experience. And um, part of that is that the school that uh, Gleason, the type of school that Gleason is, is a progressive school. And usually what that means is that uh, students learn by doing, learn by interacting with uh, their subject matter. And so it felt appropriate for the uh, form of the play to uh, to mimic that. Mm-hmm. And so we have um, the audience getting tactile experience with the content of the play. So how did you come up with this? And I should mention that um, I've seen some of your other plays in the past, and you seem to, even in other plays that are not strictly about education, have a little theme reference to education in some way, and most of the stuff that I've seen of yours. So this is a particular interest Yes, it is. <laughs> I did want to be a teacher at one point. I spent one semester uh, doing this uh, program called the Urban Education Semester that my college had, where you uh, you went to New York during the evenings. You studied at Bank Street College of Education, so you learned theory, and then during the mornings and you or, or days, you taught in a progressive education progressive school. So my school was in East Harlem, and I loved the idea. I loved my theory classes. I loved the classroom that I taught in. But what was really valuable was I learned that I was not cut out to be an elementary school teacher. <laughs> so that's lot, important to know. It's important to know <laughs> that I did not have that stamina. I caught every illness that those kids had. Um, I was really sick all the time. uh, And I had immense uh, respect for teachers and what they do in the classroom. I come from a family of educators. I I am an educator. I teach at BU. But at that level, at the K through third grade level, not what I am cut out to do. Mm -hmm. But I love the I love the um, grappling with what children need in the classroom and, and what education what, is supposed what to be. What education is mm-hmm. supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And my family talks about it a lot. So I think that that ends up in my writing a lot. Well, yeah, certainly this uh, Greater Good, your uh, latest play, uh, provides a stage for so many issues. And, and I don't, people say, oh, God, I can't go to an issue play. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't come across that way at all. It's it's very, you know, these people have a lot of story to tell. They do. <laughs> your characters. Um, so, you you know, it, it sort of reveals itself as you go along, moving through space, but also uh, understanding where each of these people are. I have to say, the actors are brilliant. Um, and um, they are the most annoying parent council I have witnessed uh, that, and I'm not a parent. So I just thought, oh, my God, I'd lose my mind if I had to be in this real for real. <laughs> but anyway, you made the point very well uh, mm-hmm. through these these characters. And I, I assume that was your point. Yes. <laughs> yes. One uh, one thing I did. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing is that I uh, looked up trustee meetings at uh in libraries. So my kids spend time in the public libraries. And at our particular one, I um, looked up the minutes uh, of their trustee meetings. And I kind of um, re- figured out how those meetings might have gone. And then I have experience. I have two children. So I have experience with their schools. Um, I love the parents in, in, those, in my kids' school. <laughs> but I also try to grapple with, okay, we every school is a microcosm and you're trying to figure out how do we educate kids? How do we work for um, a better future? 
for how the, the world that, they, that the, our kids will inherit and for the present about how these kids are moving through the school um, that they go to every day. So as, as a lot of material uh, over the last few years about the, the different worlds that I inhabit as a parent and trying to get that into the play as, as well. Uh, that's my guest, Kirsten Greenwich. She is the author of the new play, Greater Good. Um, what do you mean by greater good? What do you what do you want us to take away in the audience from that phrase? Well, I think in the last few years, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, there's been a lot of talk about wanting to do good, wanting to have a better world. And yet, I think we have a lot, I mean, a lot of us have a lot of different opinions about how to get there. And that's part of what's embedded in this play. So we are all talking about good, and it's it's um, not specified for a reason in this play. I think they all, a lot of the parents and a lot of the adults in this play say, we're, we're doing this for the greater good, and there's not always a coherent discussion about what that is or a discussion about exactly how to get there. Hmm. So it's that, And that's, for, that's on purpose. Yes. So over to you, Ilana Brownstein, dramaturg. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the setting is actually a character in the play. Um, and so then we, the audience, become part of that as well. Uh, what did it take to sort of, uh, be, I'm not revealing anything, but there are many nooks and crannies in the way that you present very uh, as the play moves through. What did it take to pull that together in such a way that you really, that it felt normal? Because you are tromping around, moving around. And actually, there's three sets of the audience moving around at the same time, but we don't see each other. That's right. Yeah. Well, so we knew that Kirsten wanted to write a play that was site-specific and that um, was in motion, that the audience would move through space. And so when we started working on the play together, we were thinking a lot about what kind of space that would be. And the play was set in a school, but we didn't know if a school was the right building to do the play in. And we we went and actually saw a lot of spaces in Boston to think about hmm. what would be the right geographical and architectural space to tell the story in. And um, there were a couple of spaces that were very promising and would have provided very interesting experiences to move through. But when it came down to it, the the architecture of the space was in conflict with the, with what the story was saying. So you would have had a kind of dissonant experience between the content of the story and, and what you were seeing as you walked around. And it became clear that Kirsten had really envisioned this as a school that lives in a brownstone. And so we thought, my gosh, okay, well, could we get a school with a, that was in a brownstone? And um, through a couple of connections with folks at the company, we got into conversation with the Commonwealth School. And they have been just excellent partners to us. They've really let us come in over the last you know, six months to try out what it felt like to tell the story in that space. And as we did that, it was, as we practiced telling the story in that space, it influenced the writing of the play. So this is sort of an amazing experience for a playwright to be able to be very thoughtful about the space that we will be in and write stories that specifically respond to that space. So we knew the framework of the story, we knew the plot, we knew the characters. But as we got into the space for rehearsals more and more, it changed some of the way the the, the scenes, the, the sort of tinier scenes where the audience is walking around, it changed how those stories relate to one another. And then, of course, one of the things that is I think is really amazing about the play as an audience member is that if you're in a group, uh, you have a certain experience. 
person in a different group sees those scenes in a different order. And so the resonance of how the story makes sense, what you feel comes first or second, what the juxtapositions are of what you hear, changes your understanding of what the what the characters are going through. So that's like the that's the writing part. But then the logistical part, the producerial part was quite, quite complicated. And in fact, all through our tech week and our previews week, we're still sort of investigating the ways that how those spaces make sense to one another, um, what it means when audiences pass one another in the hallway, what it means when they pass a character who's getting ready to go into another scene. So and those have been really exciting for us because that really amplifies and expands the storytelling. Hmm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Company One theater playwright Kirsten Greenwich and dramaturg Ilana Brownstein. We're discussing Greater Good, a new interactive immersive play by Kirsten, premiering now with the Company One Theater at the Commonwealth School. Um, I can tell you as an audience member, you don't, at least in our experience, my experience with my friend, you're not really paying attention because you're like, well, why is so-and-so so crazy as you're moving? <laughs> I mean, you're really sort of caught up in the drama of the of the last thing or what happened there or blah, blah, blah. Um, I, 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 I will just, just say this. This is because I'm dying to say this to somebody. I was telling my friend, the way that you have structured the steps, being on the steps with the audience on the steps scene is really very interesting. It really feels as though you are eavesdropping. And it's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah and you're nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Bogart, who is our yeah. director, is brilliant and wonderful and um, has done a wonderful job at being extremely intentional about where those scenes are placed and um, how they bring out the storytelling and how they bring out the, uh, the, the play in wonderful, wonderful ways. So, you know, I'm so taken with, you know, how it was uh, put together and how it is put together. I don't want to lose the essence of, you know, what your, your message is here because you studied some failed educational initiatives in Massachusetts and other places. This is specifically set in Boston, though I have to say I'm, I'm not really aware uh, in, a, in a very uh, intense way that it, was, it had to be in Boston. I mean, I knew it was, but... It, that that wasn't a, a, such a presence in my mind. So why was it important for you to to you know get through to in your play that you know while we're all struggling for the greater good, you know stuff messes up in a big way. <laughs> you know? um, I think it was it's important to know that despite the messing up, we still have to persevere and we still have to try. Uh, while it's set in a school and we're talking specifically about a school setting, I also wanted to also have the underlying idea that this, we're also talking about local government. We're also talking about ne uh, federal government that we also should be, we should be empowered or feel empowered by the end of the play to uh, make a difference no matter where we sit, that uh, one of the characters in the play, and I won't give away who it is, mm -hmm. who they are, uh, actually several characters in the play throughout the course of the play, feel empowered to raise their voice. And um, hopefully, by seeing that several times with the play, an individual seeing the play, um, if they aren't already inspired to do that, will feel that they um, can do that in their own lives, whether it's on their local PTA, in their local government, uh, maybe going, getting curious about going to their, a town meeting, um, especially in the last few years. And... Uh, between the 2016 election and we have 2020 coming up. And then there's there's obviously other 
elections between those between election uh, presidential election years as well. Well, I definitely what comes across very strongly is that you have all of these voices at the table, and that um, as you pointed out, some right away may not speak up, but other but they may later. But you become increasingly aware that each person has an impact on the other one, and what happens as a whole is very much impacted by what these people are struggling around together or making some progress in in some ways. Um, over to you, Ilana. Uh, because it's your your job to pay attention to how audience is responding, how is audience responding other than my what I just told you I was doing? Yeah, <laughs> really positively. Yeah. We had um, we had an, a full audience last night uh, for one of our preview shows. And as soon as the play started in the the council scene where we see all these all these uh, characters who are on the parents council sort of trying to start a meeting and kind of failing to start a meeting effectively, mm-hmm. there was a whole row of people who were um, laughing so hard. And I afterwards I went up to them and I said, do you work in schools? And they said, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> and so I, it, it was, was, real, a, life it was real life. I had a great conversation with them because um, they were talking about how their experience of trying to push forward in a collective way towards greater good is often quite difficult because though we all have an ideal of what we think governance can be, Government is and government at all sizes, right? We're talking parents council up to the presidential um, office up to Congress. Those are all just run by people and Mm. people are fallible and have bad days or like have to make their kids bedtime or or, don't hear each other or don't hear each other (laughs) or, you know, so there's a million reasons why. Everybody might be entering with the best intentions to get something done, but uh, but human human fallacies kind of get in the way. Yeah, that was that definitely comes across, and I want to make it clear because so often when we're talking about these heavy themes of race and gender and governance, um, and you know greater good possibilities, it feels very heavy. There are a lot of laugh out loud moments, uh, Kirsten. Very, uh, I don't even know how you write humor like that. But <laughs> it's a it's it was some scenes were really really funny. <laughs> I have to say. It's good to know. It's good to know. Well, you know, you, you can hear us responding. Yeah. I would say that one of the some some of how uh, that humor gets built is in the rehearsal process. Mm. Some of it's just in my head, um, and then we have we have a long rehearsal process, which really helps to be able to build that type of humor with the cast, with Steve, with dramaturgy, um, uh, the dramaturgical team, because we get to know each other in a room, and um, and jo- those jokes are often. Start on the page, but then get built. Well, it's working because I had some good guffaws in there. <laughs> That's good. All right, what do you two want people to take away? I'll start with you, Elena. What do you want people to take away from this experience? Uh, and, the, and, and the play, of course, is the heartbeat of the experience. So mm-hmm. Company One produces theater at the intersection of art and social change. And any play that we produce, we are trying to create a point of dialogue between the art that's happening and the community we live in. Um, So for me, one of the big things that I'm really interested in is what can we help audience members do in terms of action steps after they leave the theater um, or the school? Uh, One of the questions we explicitly ask audiences, and if people come, they'll sort of see how this happens, is what tables of power do you sit at, real or metaphorical tables of power? And 
in those seats, how have you made change? Um, that's a question I, I personally really want audiences to, to think about because I do believe that we all have spheres of influence. Um, they may not all be at like the city council level, but there are spaces where we have privilege and influence and power. And I think that one of the things the play is asking us to do is think about where do we exercise that power? Do we opt in or do we opt out? So for me, I'm really interested in um, in helping audiences find paths of action for whatever they personally care about um, as they see the characters struggle to do so. I mean, I think it also helps to, to, to be reminded that uh, if you just sit around and observe other people feeling as though, well, something else is going to happen or I can't do anything about it, things move on and maybe get worse. <laughs> so that that is, comes across very clearly. Um, Kirsten, what do you want people to take away? I would have to, I would definitely have to echo. And the reason why I would have to echo or or um, back that up is because I think uh, my creation of the play is intrinsically wrapped up with these values. And um, and that's, what, that's why, I'm in, hopefully that's why I'm in residence in Company One. Mm. However, um, I hope when people step away from this play, that they are empowered, uh, they are empowered to make change, and I hope that they have a, a good experience. I think that when so, uh, someone asked me um, this week, right before the show began, during a preview for a preview, why is this play? Why is this called an experience and not a play? And um, and I said, I uh, because. <laughs> We're not sitting there receiving the play. Mm -hmm. You're stepping into an experience. And so that I hope that um, people receive it or experience it um, in a holistic level. And I hope that I, I hope that they have a good time. So all of what Alana said, but then I hope they also have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think there is any danger that they won't. It was pretty interesting. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kirsten Greenwich is the playwright of Greater Good of the Immersive Experience. She is currently a Mellon Fellow and a HowlRound Artist-in-Residence at Company One Theater. Ilana Brownstein is a dramaturg and director of new work at Company One Theater. She was the lead dramaturg in the development of Greater Good. Greater Good is on stage at the Commonwealth School through Saturday, August 17th. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.